got friends, only wanna talk business. I got expenses, cause when is expensive. I got expenses, cause when is expensive. I've been reading all the work. And I've been shutting out the stars. Cause when it rains and it pours. Yeah. And I'm ready for some more. Yeah. And I've been reading all the work. And I've been shutting out the stars. And welcome to this audio-only podcast episode of Put That Coffee Down, the Freight Sales Show for Closers. My name is Kevin Hill, your host as, as usual, as we talk about sales and business, entrepreneurship, all across freight sales and the freight industry. I have a, a special guest with me today, Matthew Leffler. He is the armchair attorney. And we're going to talk about legal things because everyone needs to know. I mean, it's transportation, right? It's it's all run by lawyers and complex contracts. Uh, so it's good to, to, to know how to read those, what to look out for. We're going to talk a little about, about classification, AB5, which is a hot topic. Um, and then, you know, incorporation. You know, whether it's LLC, S Corp, you know, kind of your, your different strategies for that and all of the unlocked and untapped value you can get from having an LLC. I've, I've had one for years. I love it. Um, so, Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. I'm excited to be here. Talk about law, talk about supply chain. I like to say you can't opt out of the supply chain. You are just a part of it. You can't get out of it. And the same is true with the law. It's always around us. Everything <laughs> we do uh, is somehow related to legal uh, concepts and legal doctrines. And anytime I get to talk about law and supply chain, I'm a happy camper. That it is. I, I, I'm glad you're a happy camper right now. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, about armchair attorney, kind of what you're doing right now. Yeah, I appreciate that. So um, as you mentioned, my name is Matthew Leffler. I, I have a law firm called The Armchair Attorney. It's kind of a moniker I adopted uh, trying to explain legal concepts to folks and help people understand what these things are that you're signing. And so Armchair Attorney seeks to help clients uh, understand and overcome legal challenges, whether it's you know contracts with businesses or your, or your customers, contract with your employees, and understanding what the legal risks are when you know, regulatory landscape continues to change. My my real goal is to make sure that people understand what their rights are and how to navigate this continually challenging business. And supply chain is rife with opportunities. It is rife with opportunities to, to modernize in any way and shape and fashion. Uh, there is, I know we talked about uh, right before we, we hit record, we we're talking about AB5, we we're talking about uh, forming your own business, uh, but I, I didn't even think about it until now when you're doing your introduction and non-competes. Let's start off with, with a little bit about non-competes. It's a hot yeah. topic. Uh, friends over at Steam Logistics, is, uh, they're doing quite a bit with non-competes or trying to vanquish non-competes. And I'm talking to them coming up on F3 or during F3 here in the next couple of weeks. So uh, what's your take on non-competes? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's a really interesting topic. So non-competition agreements are a flavor of what we call post-employment restrictive covenants. Essentially, they're contracts that say, you're no longer working with me, but I still want to make you do something for me. And so there's different flavors. We all know non-disclosure agreements. Don't go telling my secrets to somebody else. We know things like non-solicitation. Don't call my customers. Don't call my people. We know non-disparagement. Don't talk bad about me. Don't say things that aren't nice. 
But these non-competition agreements are fascinating. And a non-competition agreement bans or bars you from doing a certain activity for a certain period of time in a certain area. And they're everywhere. Um, over 30 million Americans have signed a non-competition agreement, 18% of the workforce. And of those people, less than 10% will even negotiate them. Uh, I'll just going to give an example of uh, one very famous non-competition agreement with a sandwich maker, Jimmy John's. Great sandwiches, really bad post-employment restrictive covenants. They had a covenant with their employees that you could not, within a three-mile radius and for two years, work at any company that makes over 10% of their revenue from cold-cut sandwiches. This is absurd. This is absolutely yeah. absurd. But they're everywhere in our industry, particularly. A lot of people get locked up into these non-competition agreements. You know, and uh, you're exactly right. The Jimmy John's case is is strange, right? And the lower level you are as an employee, the it, the the loose and loose it should be, or the looser it should be on the non-compete. You know, I mean, if you're making sandwiches behind a counter, you shouldn't be signing non-competes. A hundred percent. You shouldn't be forced to, let's put it that way. Absolutely. And what happens with these people before laws get passed to ban them in that context, um, you're fired if you don't sign. 30 to 40% mm -hmm. of people that have non-competes, part of their employment contracts, didn't even see them before they joined the company. So you get this non-compete given to you, let's say a month or so into your job. And it's like, hey, you sign this or we're going to fire you. And a lot of states, and Illinois being one of them, have banned non-competes for people making under a certain dollar amount. Because the data shows more than 30 or 40% of people that sign them are making under 13 bucks an hour. So it's it's pervasive and it's everything, not just supply chain, it's everything. It really is. You know, what, what kind of trade secrets or competitive advantage, you if you're making $13 an hour, right? Uh, what what secrets do you really have that the yeah. general public doesn't already have? You know, and it kind of goes into the same thing. If you're an entry level freight broker, right? You're doing that first year right out of college. This might my, my my analysis my analogy. I, I like to always do. If you're 22 right out of college, you spend a year as a freight broker. Um, you know, you you don't really do all that well. You're average, right? You're an average freight broker. And uh, and you want to move, or you want to do, or you get canned, right? You get laid off, or you get fired for not making your quota. You're still under that non-compete, which I don't think is very fair whatsoever. No, it's not fair. And to to your point about people with lack experience getting to sign these documents, it's a retention challenge. So one of the things that happened years ago is that people looked and said, well, man, we keep losing all these people. Should we make the company better to work for? No, no, let's not do that. How about we tell them that if they, if they quit, we'll sue them. Would you think that's legal? Sure. Let's give it a try. So a lot of companies, and I, I, I know this to be the, the case, will make people sign non-competes knowing that they're unenforceable, but that most people don't understand that. And they'd rather have them leave the industry entirely than go work for a competitor. So this is a, a it's a very nefarious pathway to say, how can I get someone to sign this? And I'm telling you, as a lawyer, we're very good at tricking people into signing things that aren't in their interest. And some states, like again, like look at Illinois, if you give someone a non-competition agreement, if it's not banned by the salary cap that, that's in the, the statute, you have to give the, the, the new employee 14 days minimum to review the contract. So you're giving protections by the state. And some companies are like, I don't want to do business in a state like Illinois or California because mm -hmm. some of these laws make it really hard for me to abuse my workers. It, it really does. And so, so you have the, the, 
you know, the, the, the normal non-competes, I guess this might be a normal non-compete as well, but how do you define the industry in your industry? It can be very broad. You know, I've heard, you know, we've, we've had articles on freight waves of very broad interpretations of that, of anything in transportation or the supply chain being a competitor, which I, I don't know how that's enforceable, but I don't even know if it, if it is, but just the threat of enforcing is, is very expensive. This is uh, what they'll do. Uh, these lost the, these um these contracts have a thing called an uh they have clauses they're, and they're they're clauses that are designed to save the contract if what you put in there isn't legal so they'll say we're going to define the business as anything that touches shipping anything touches fulfillment anything touches delivery so you could be at a freight brokerage and then go work at Jimmy John's as a driver and they might say you're violating the non compete because you're now driving in transportation um, what ends up happening is the court can remake the contract to make it enforceable and say, now this contract will be enforceable. But that company that first drafted the document and now knows their contract isn't enforceable, they're not changing it. They'll let the court change it next time. So they're very careful and very strategic in how they do this. What, what are your thoughts? What's, what's, what are your predictions for the future of non-competes and in, in transportation? The, 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 the future is very clear. Um, they are going to go away. Now, states are coming in and they're saying, we are going to knock them out for people under a certain dollar figure. We're going to ban them for certain types of transactions. Nobody in the non-compete movement is talking about, we want to ban them if you sell a business and you have mm-hmm. to be locked out for a couple of years. No one's talking about that. But the feds have also come in and said, look, we have a problem with mobility for workers. We are seeing this outcome. Like, Just to give like, way more insight into this, this challenge, um, it's very disparate for people of color and people and, and women because those, those groups tri- typically don't negotiate contracts very often. They just say, yeah, I'll just sign whatever you give me. So there's a lot of problems with non-competes. The feds will continue to make it a challenge for people to put these non-competes in place. And I think states are going to start moving towards this. What we hope is an industry is it they just stop doing it like it doesn't work it doesn't make you retain people better it doesn't make your customers happy doesn't protect your shareholders but there's lazy executives and lazy executives like to lean on the thing they've always done which is make every single person sign a non-competition agreement yeah i I, you know and as a basis for employment for an entry-level position right no matter what industry uh, it is nonsensical it's unfair i i don't agree with it as well. well, let's say if you come in an entry level into a brokerage and over the course of maybe two or three, four years, you become one of the top producers. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe at that point you sign a non-compete, though I don't know if it, it might be very hard to get a high producer to sign non-compete at that point. Right. So it's yeah. like a double edged sword or catch 22, if you say this is I mean, this is you're exactly in the right position. Like what we want to see with non-competition agreements is you pay someone separately. We call it separate consideration. You want me to sit out for a year, pay me for a year. If you're not going to pay me for a year, give me a couple thousand dollars, give me ten, twenty thousand dollars maybe I'll sign it. But what ends up happening is no one gets paid anything and no one's uh, held accountable for making sure that it's a good deal for the worker. They're not getting attorneys. The, the hiring entity isn't paying for you to go talk to a lawyer and say, hey, could you negotiate this or redline this for my client? Um, it's very strange. And 
when you can get people to sign non-competes, you might want to give them a stock award. Maybe you want to give them mm -hmm. that sign-on bonus or promotion. No one is talking about, again, like if you're a C-level person at a publicly traded multinational, yeah, you probably have a non-compete. You're probably also paid really well for that non-compete. But if you probably a have a contract of service too. Absolutely. Right. absolutely. You have a, under contract for five years and you're going to, a non-compete is going to come with that, that contract of service, right? Exactly. I mean, we want as an industry, as in, as a society, most people are at will. So you work at the pleasure of me saying you get to work here and you stay at the pleasure of you staying. The minute you say you don't want to do it, you go on. These non-competes, these post-employment restrictive covenants is akin in my, in my mind of you have a breakup and you say, listen, let's go our separate ways, but you're not allowed to talk to anybody else who wears glasses or looks like me. Like, oh, you can't do that. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, but that's how we deal with non-competes in the business. It really is. It's, a, it's strange. And Steam Logistics has, has created this movement. I think they have over 100 uh, companies signed on board now. I was, I was talking to, to Malcolm over there yesterday. Uh, hopefully that gains steam, that that movement does, and, and we get rid of non-competes for you know 90% of the people in this industry who Absolutely. get duped into designing them. Now, I would also kind of caution folks on non-solicitation agreements too. Um, what I would say on non-solicitation- Which is different. Yeah, very, very different, different than a non-compete. Yeah, so the non-solicitation agreement, what that means, and you, these usually come hand in hand. Like if you don't sign one, you're going to sign the other. Non-solicitations, and many of the people who are part of the non-compete movement, they have rigorous non-solicitation agreements. And what a non-solicitation agreement really does is it prohibits you, the individual, from reaching out, reaching out to your former clients, reaching out to your former customers, can't do that. However, um, they still have the same regulation. So in states like Illinois, you still have to give them 14 days to, to look at mm -hmm. this. And this is not legal advice. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. But if your customer calls you or your former coworker calls you, you're not soliciting them. That is not a breach of the contract. So you can kind of, I wouldn't say circumvent isn't the right word, but you can get around the challenge that a non-solicit provides. I do not like to see big companies sending out cease and desist letters saying you have violated a non-solicitation agreement all the time. I, I don't like that use of the legal system to protect your business from having real competition. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so there are ways, creative ways to get around non-solicitation. Maybe, maybe that would right. be a good episode one of these days for, for putting that copy down. I can help people get out of them. Oh, good. Maybe. Good. We, we'll cover that in a, on a future episode. Uh, I want to get to AB5 uh, and get your take on AB5. We were on the radio, I don't know, two, three weeks ago talking about it on Freight Waves Radio, which is on Sirius XM, Road Dog Channel, uh, every day, 5 to 7 Eastern. I had to plug that. Um, and we were talking about AB5. What does the world look like with, with AB5 in effect? And in California right now. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to say it's much ado about nothing because that's not a fair statement. But what AB5 does is it codifies what the normal law in California was. So in our legal system, we have statutory law, which is what's Congress or a Senate or somebody passes and some an executive says, this is what we're going to do. There's, there's regulation, which is basically kind of quasi-legislative that comes out of an agency. And then there's a stuff that's called um, common law. And common law, is it, it sounds weird, but to say it's judge-created law, it's case law that judges say, well, in this last case 30 years ago, that's what we held. And so that's what the law is going to be. So when we talk about AB5, it is the codification of a case called Dynamex. And Dynamex was an interesting trucking company that had 
a bunch of employees and then some executives said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could fire all of these drivers? Oh, well, what would we do for delivery? Oh, no, we'd use the same people. We would just call them independent contractors. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, now we're not going to pay them health insurance. We're not going to pay workers' comp. We do all these different things. So we're going to save a bunch of money and save liability. Doesn't that sound great? And everyone was so excited until Dynamex and their drivers, uh, the drivers sued. The drivers are the ones who typically, or the worker is typically the one who sues for the misclassification. And Dynamex is the case that adopted this thing called the ABC test. And the ABC test is just three things. And it starts off, um, before we get to the first three things, it starts off with the presumption that the hiring entity is lying. The hiring entity actually has an employee and it's up to the hiring entity to prove that this entity that they're saying is an independent contractor is in fact an independent contractor. So how do you prove it? Well, the, I'll just kind of list them off briefly because I think it's it's helpful. Um, the it is. worker is... Yeah, the worker is free from the employer's control or direction in performing the work. So what does control mean? It means this is when you show up, this is what you wear, this is what you say, this is what you do. Uh, that's a lot of control. And so if you're, a, um, let's say, a cashier at Walmart, you're not going to get away saying, oh, that's a contractor. No, it's not. It's an employee. So that's the first part. The second part of the test is the work takes place outside the usual course of the business of the company and off the site of the business. So if I'm a painter and I have a bunch of sub painters and I call them contractors, that is different than me being a general contractor who just hires painters from time to time. So what is the business that you do? If your core business is the thing you say is a contractor, you're probably going to lose. And then this last one is customarily the worker is engaged in an independent trade, occupation, profession, or business. This is will tie on more to what we talked about before on making a company, an LLC, or sub S. But who is your customer? If your only client for your business is one entity, and that one entity tells you everything that you do, you're probably going to be an employee. So that's what the ABC test does. It's not a new test. It's been around for decades. 20 states use the ABC test. So that is what AB5 is really doing, is taking what was statute, it was a common law and making it into a statute. And, and that's an interesting, that's the best breakdown I've heard of it. So thank you so much for that. Awesome. Number one is because it's very confusing and it's so confusing, you know, we talked about this on the radio too. So what what exactly is an independent contractor, right? Because yeah. there are times, you know, like the Dynamax, right? Where you're an exploited independent contractor. And then there's other times where you are a free, you know, you know it really goes back to how much control that, are they really an employer or not, right? If they, if they control what you do, if, especially if you're a driver, Let, let's say you're a driver and you can only haul loads from the person you're an independent contractor for, right? Exactly. That is a, a red flag or, uh, you know, you know what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah. A, a good example is that case we talked about in the seventh circuit court of appeals with Schneider. Uh, Schneider had an owner operator. Owner operator was doing the owner operator stuff. They ran their own business. They had their own, they paid their fuel, they paid their maintenance, they paid their insurance, all these things. The only thing Schneider said was, don't haul for my competitors. 
It's like, okay, well, that sounds really interesting. It doesn't sound like I'm independent. It kind of sounds like I am uh, not independent. And, and that's how it ends up happening. So it's hard to, it does, for a lot of people, it feels really complicated that uh, the government would come in and say, we are going to tell you what you are. But this is the thing we have to understand as Americans. Um, the hiring entity is the one that classifies you. You generally, individually, may not know or care what it means to be an employee or a contractor. You just think, you're going to pay me money and I'm going to do the thing you tell me to do. The, the challenge becomes when hiring entities know or should know that this is actually an employee and they're just trying to circumvent all of the, 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 the fees and the insurance and the overhead by passing that on to somebody else. And that's when you have these rubs. Now, AB5 has carve-outs for people like hairdressers or lawyers or doctors, all these things. Um, there are some carve-outs for construction workers that kind of apply to trucking, but trucking is not exempted specifically, not for lack of trying. Um, I'll just mention this like Proposition 22, which was the gig companies, so your Ubers and your Lyfts, mm -hmm. DoorDash, whatever. All of those people are contractors too. But the difference between the gig companies and the trekking associations is the gig companies had a lot more money and they spent over $200 million lobbying to have their business model exempted from AB5. Now, the feds are looking at the gig workers a little bit more carefully. And we'll see more on that over the next couple of months. But it's a really good analogy. Of like, how do you know what someone is? Is they an employee or are they a contractor? The, um, the thing I would say, just to kind of put a bow around it, is I look at this when we look at how Pluto was classified as a dwarf planet and not a planet. There were three rules that were invented for classification of planets. Orbiting a star, mostly the sun, um, clearing your orbital path, removing debris, and having this thing called hydrostatic equilibrium. You are a sphere. So you look at those three tests and you say, well, let's apply the facts to that test. And then you get a planet or a dwarf planet. This is what AB5 is. You can say whatever you want to be. I don't care. You could say whatever. But if we look at the test and it comes out that you look like a, uh, an employee, you're going to be an employee. Now, for, for those who don't want to be an employee... Right, and, and let, let's take take this track because this is an interesting track. If you don't want, if you're independent operator, right, or independent contractor, whether it, you know whatever it may be, right. If you're a freight agent, you're usually a ten ninety nine, yeah, um, person, and that's what you want, right. Now, if you're an Uber driver making less than minimum wage, you might not want to be classified as an independent contractor, right? Yeah. Um, but if you want to remain an independent contractor because you're truly an entrepreneur, um, there are things that you need to do. And one of those is incorporation because That's right. if you're not incorporated, LLC is probably the primary one. If you're not, then you should be no matter what, no matter AB5 or classifications or anything, you should have an LLC for reasons uh, you can list off right now. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> having a corporate entity is amazing. So remember, um, corporate entities did not exist when the country was founded. This this idea of limiting liability and having different ways to be a, an equity holder in a business that can be protected from liability wasn't wasn't there. So we have these things called the C corporation. That's what everyone knows about publicly traded multinationals. Um, there's S corporations, which are very common. The, the company my father founded was a sub S corporation. Great great business model. Um, LLCs are the most the newest kind of new kid on the street. There's 
good regulations for how they're treated with tax implications. I am not a tax attorney. I will give no tax advice under any circumstances. But the critical thing about a company is limitation of liability. It is the ability to protect your individual assets from the potential problem of the organization that you've created. That's why they're called limited liability companies. They limit the liability. But if you want to be a separate business, you can take advantage of so many incentives tax-wise in terms of how you file for things, how you look at your, your schedule of your assets that you own. Um, there's opportunities for loans, opportunities for good insurance rates. But if you want to be a separate standalone entity, having an LLC is a great vehicle to do that. Everybody should have an LLC. Armchair attorney is an LLC. Um, it's only owned by me because I'm a lawyer and my wife can't own a, a legal corporation, but that's okay. We still collaborate on other projects. But the other pieces that make it very useful is if you're into that that battle of are you an employee or are you a contractor, if you have a standalone entity and the hiring entity has retained your company, you're going to be independent, man. Like that's the pathway. Um, we talk about AB5 and some of the classification issues, but um, there was a, a, a parcel carrier everyone knows about. Um, you could do Amazon or FedEx in the same business, kind of in, in a sense of how they classify drivers, but they require you to have a corporation or, or some form of a, an LLC to do business with them. They won't even work with you if you're a sole proprietor. And that's because they understand that for them, it gives them the most legal protection and for you, the business owner, a lot more protections as well. So the, the thing that I, I, would, I would emphasize to folks is if you're thinking about an LLC, they are easy to file. Typically, it's less than a couple hundred bucks to do the filing. You can do it all online. You do not need an attorney to make an LLC, though it's always helpful to consult an attorney to ask specific questions about what you want to do with the business. But everybody should know how corporations are formed and they should get to learn about you know, how easy it is. I think Illinois is like $250 to make a corporation. So there is some, some benefits for doing it and it's not that cost prohibitive. Yeah, I agree with you. LLCs are, are beautiful. I've had one for about eight years. I don't know what I would do without it. Uh, it it's been great. I sold a business, signed a non-compete um, out of the LLC. But the LLC is kind of the, the holding company. And I'm not a tax attorney either. Don't take a tax advice from me. But there's a lot you can write off as business exp expenses legitimately uh, that is much easier and you have much more uh, headroom to do that with than if you're an independent contractor doing personal taxes and, and doing that. But and again, the, the the limited liability factor of that is is enormous because if you get sued uh, by a lawyer um, like, like Matt, uh, you know, it protects your personal assets from you know, your business assets. Doesn't mean you can hide everything. But legitimately, uh, your your business is at arm's length, right? Absolutely. Now, the one thing I, I would I would give a caveat here is if you do have a, a corporation LLC or sub S or whatever, you want to make sure it has adequate insurance. Um, I have yes. had plenty of opportunities where I've encountered an LLC as a client, or not a client, but a, an adversary to my client, when they didn't carry adequate insurance, and then you pierce the veil, you go after the personal liability of somebody because you underinsure. So the story for every lawyer is always carry enough insurance. Uh, if you think you have enough, probably double it. Just be safe. You don't want to be in that position where you're underinsured and other liabilities can come knocking on your door. You don't. And if you're driving a truck, you want to be overinsured 
That's as right. well as, as most insurance it's expensive uh especially if you're driving an uh eighty thousand pound truck trailer and, and product around um you know if you're a, a freight broker it's a little expensive as well if you're uh, a consultant it's much less expensive really because uh, you're you're you, the risks of you being sued are, are pretty minimal um that's right I mean, I carry I carry a half a million dollar policy for myself. It's about a thousand bucks a year, so it's not terrible. Mm -hmm. Trucking is more expensive, but to kind of put some more meat behind that, most truckers only have about seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars of liability insurance, and that doesn't get you very far. Um, it's very expensive to have a catastrophic accident, and that's why it's important for brokers to be aware of the potential liability they may face someday um, for drivers that are underinsured and people going after the broker because that is where the pockets are where they can get re, uh, reimbursed for what they've experienced. Yeah, so you bring up a really good point because the day the AB5, I, I want to say non-decision, because it was really a non-decision by the Supreme Court, uh, the, the C.H. Robinson case, the, the vicarious liability. Um, if I understand it right, it, it it kind of extended back to the states to where the states get to make up or, yeah. uh, you know, they, they can create their own rules, right? So you yeah. have 50 different or 48 continuous continental, you know, 48 different rules that apply to broker liability. Yeah, so to to explain that case a little bit more, let, let's look at like the the specific facts of how this this kind of played out. So there is a a company shipper, I think it's Costco, is looking to move something. They hire C H Robinson. C H Robinson hires a truck driver. Truck driver um, crosses the center line, collides with somebody, catastrophic accident, really scary stuff. Um, the argument that was made against, so the person's injured, they then sue um, the driver, they sue the trucking company, they sue the broker. I don't think they sue the shipper, I don't think they sue Costco, but uh, someday they may have. And what ends up happening is um, the argument that's being made is we are preempted. You are not allowed to sue us because we have this preemption that protects us. And the preemption had to do with um, F4A, I think it is, or some some. Administrative the federal aviation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, the thing that was the the important thing to remember here is negligence, which is what was brought against the broker, is a state specific claim, and most states view this as a safety uh, kind of regulation. And the the preemption just does not apply to this if, uh, the F F four A. I think it's what they call it. Um, what ends up happening is it's reminding us all that. Just because we think we're preempted doesn't mean we are. Now, the broker can still get out of this case. Like that Supreme Court appeal was not about like a verdict against C.H. Robinson. It was about the ability for C.H. Robinson to even be in the lawsuit. And the Supreme Court's like, this has been the law for a long time. We're not changing any of this in order to give C.H. Robinson some, some additional cover fire. They have see Robinson will have to deal with the case. It'll it'll mm -hmm. probably be settled at some level. Doubtful they want to be in that mix of some catastrophic thing. But you are always possible to be sued if you had negligently retained a carrier. And that negligently retained a carrier is going to depend state by state of what is required or what's your duty to to vet the carrier. But that liability could be there. And, and that's the problem with it all, I, I think, is that it's very unclear what negligence means. Yeah. I mean, because there's, there's no formal process for it that, that ties it all together. So no matter what you do, uh, an attorney such as yourself can poke a hole in it, right? right? Because it's, it's a very inexact science, you know, where they weren't conditional. 
okay, well, but they had this. Well, yeah. You know, we checked against this, but something outside or, or normal process that, that we probably would never be able to even know yeah. shows up in court, right? And the, the sad part of all of it, I think, is um, among the – besides the tragedy of someone being horrifically injured, mm-hmm. is that um, if they had enough insurance, you wouldn't sue the broker. Like the only reason you do this, like I use the statistics, I think it's really useful, but the Department of Transportation has a valuation, a, a statistical valuation of human life. The DOT tells you how much a human life is worth in their regulations. And it's like $11.2 million. So we know how much a human life is. That's just kind of the nature of the business. No trucking company, except for the big ones, typically carry insurance that could handle this. So you get someone who's in the hospital and they have three or $4 million of medical bills. Who pays for that? Well, you and me, the taxpayer do, because mm-hmm. that person, if they can't get payment from a third party, they're going to go into bankruptcy. 20, I think it's like 60% of all bankruptcies are medical bankruptcies. So this is the nature of what we live in. No one, as far as I can tell, is saying every trucking company should have $10 million of liability. I'd say that. I love that idea, but they're not going to do that. It's too expensive. It is too expensive, and, and insurance companies won't extend that uh, that that much really insurance to the, the trucking industry, and, and it's probably because it's too expensive. You know, I mean, talk about inflation rates. I mean, it would skyrocket if if yeah. trucking companies carried uh, the a realistic insurance policy or, or mandated to do that. Because um, if a human life is eleven point two million dollars, seven fifty. Seven hundred fifty thousand isn't going to get you very far. Going to get you a leg, maybe an a, arm. A leg, yeah. Hardly even a car accident. You know, even survivors, right, with Absolutely. not serious in- injuries, will well, get you well above seven hundred fifty thousand. And this is like I, I look back at this. I, I I love thinking about this in terms of deregulation. So deregulation back in nineteen eighty, we had you know sixty percent of trucking companies or truck drivers were unionized. It was heavily consolidated, very big companies. When you had deregulation, a bunch of small companies popped up. Costs went down, and costs go down because they're able to cut costs and things they didn't have to pay for. So lower wages for truck drivers, lower insurance rates. But if you look at someone like a Walmart or a UPS or an Amazon, they have plenty of insurance because they know at the scale they operate, they will have some level of these things. And and then I, I look at like we see with International Road Check and Brake Safety Week, where 10 to 20% of all commercial vehicles inspected fail for critical safety violations. You go back and go, well, how do you fix this? Like, is this, is this really the, the supply chain we want? And I don't know that it is, but the changes that would be required are pretty subst- substantial and not many people have the appetite for that level of change. But they really don't. They really don't. I, I'm, I'm surprised deregulation even happened. You know, That's right. something that broad. You know, whether it's full regulation or full deregulation, um, I, I don't think the, the the country and certainly the government has that the appetite for such a, a wide changing rule about anything. Whether you're going right or left, doesn't Absolutely. matter. It's all it's all incremental changes these days, and some of the incremental changes I like. I mean, we I think we talked before, not not here, but like the apprenticeship driver program, like people under twenty one mm-hmm. operating interstate. Yeah, for me, I'm vehemently against it, but I understand the industry's desire to get younger people to enter it. But the inter intrastate has been legalized for almost for like forty nine states for you know decades. Like so you could still drive a truck intrastate, but now there's ways to go over the road as a younger person. Yeah, I, I think I, I, 
there's all kinds of issues. I, I can make a case for it and against it. It's That's one right. of those issues where it's like, I, I, I think in a lot of ways, if you're in transportation, you want to increase the barriers of entry a little bit. I know that recruiting departments and, and large trucking companies that have high turnover might want to reduce that barrier of entry. But I think um, to some degree, if you're a participant, you know, if, if you're an operator, if you're a fleet, if you're a freight broker, um, limiting some of the, the, the barriers to entry is certainly in your self-interest. Now, whether it's right or wrong, I don't know, but it's kind of in That's your right. self-interest, right? Absolutely. I mean, we, that's a great example with, with the talk around hair follicle testing for truck drivers mm-hmm. for, for certain controlled substances. And the idea that would be behind it would be up to 300,000 drivers would be out of the pool. And that would decrease capacity. It would raise rates. It would give uh, some companies really good incentives to do that. And it would remove a lot of potential drivers. And there's a lot of – like the, the, the critical thing I think you brought up just as I, as I kind of think about this is – there is reasonable arguments for almost anything. It's okay to have disagreements on policy and realize that we're not monsters for having the opposite opinion. I think too often the media wants to make it seem like it's a fight and a knife battle mm-hmm. and we have to be on one side or the other. But these are really nuanced arguments that have reasonable people on both sides. And that's what we hope for is just a dialogue that is generally respectful and, and somewhat reasonable. That, that would be good, somewhat respectful and, and reasonable. Uh, sometimes you don't have that in today's world, but you know, right. though there's been many incidents in the past where you didn't have it either. So uh, it's, it's kind of human nature, I think, on, 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 on a few of those points. Um, well, you know what, Matt? It's, it's been great having you on the show today, uh, running up on, on time here, but we'll have you back very soon. We'll do another podcast and, and tackle some more issues because I have like – five other topics I can think about right now, but uh, we, we can't go on forever. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me, Kevin. It's been an absolute pleasure working with you today. Yeah. So how does our audience and listeners uh, reach out and, and, and find you, the armchair attorney? Yeah, you can go to my website, armchairattorney.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, Matthew Leffler, and the law firm name is Armchair Attorney. I'm on Twitter and TikTok. That's Armchair Addy, A-T-T-Y. Why? Because A-T-T-Y is the abbreviation for the word attorney. Uh, Other than that, that's pretty much the main ways you can find me. And that's perfect. And now that brings up questions about TikTok and how you use TikTok, because I I would like to, to pick your brain about that, but that will be our next episode then. Fantastic. I got like 38 followers or something, maybe 36. I don't know. I'm on, I'm on the move. It's, the trajectory is looking really positive. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and that wraps it up. Uh, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. No, you don't. Here I come. No, you don't.